Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the second generation sensation, Brian Hardy, and you are watching the greatest YouTube series of all time, Stu's Wrestling Podcast. <laughs> You're listening to Stu's Wrestling Podcast. It's time for British Wrestling's Sharpshooter, your host, Stu Palmer. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It is episode 96 of Stu's Wrestling Podcast and my guest today is acclaimed writer, New York Times bestseller, former writer of WWF WWE magazine for 22 years, Keith Elliott Greenberg. Keith has been involved with television media, working for CNN in more current times. He has also got a book. He is the author of Too Sweet Inside the Indie Wrestling Revolution, which you can find on ECW Press. This man has done an awful, awful lot. And I'd be remiss to say, to not cover about his feature for Inside the Ropes magazine that you can get, which is published here in the UK. And he was telling me you can get it in America. So if you listen to the show in America, you can get Inside the Ropes, the wrestling magazine from certain bookstores. He also has some great stories about Vince McMahon. Also, going to tribute to the troops in Iraq. So I got to ask him about heading into that war zone. His own personal feelings about going to that. And uh, yeah, some interesting stuff. An interesting guy. He's been in the media journalistically for so long. So, without further ado, my guest for episode 96 of Stu's Wrestling Podcast is New York Times bestselling author, journalist. You name it, he's done it. Keith Elliott Greenberg. Enjoy. My guest all the way from New York in the good old US of A is acclaimed journalist, broadcast journalist, writer, New York Times bestseller. He wrote for WWF, WWE magazine for 22 years. All the way from New York, it is Keith Elliott Greenberg. It is my absolute honour and privilege to have you on for episode 96 of Stu's Wrestling Podcast. How are you? I'm great. And if you're going to list my credentials... Let's also be current and mention that I am a columnist for Inside the Ropes magazine, yes. which is right now the pride of British publishing. It is. Bill, I'm, I'm sure Bill Apter's still writing for it as well, so it's good to have he you is, too. He's the senior consultant there. It's incredible, isn't it? How is it? Is it quite accessible out there? Are the book places able to get well, it or you know, they're, they're getting distributed in the u.s as well it's not like in the uk where you can walk up to a newsstand and pick it up but you can go to a chain there's the barnes and noble chain of bookstores and they'll have an issue that's a couple of weeks old in there um certainly i've been getting uh, when i do come across somebody who reads it they usually act very exuberant when they discover that I write for Inside the Ropes. 
That's cool. That's cool. I'm. I like to have it in print form in my hand. I know you can obviously get it digitally, which you know would obviously help for for uh, you know international. No, that's, like that was the it. whole concept behind it. Um, you know, Dante Richardson and Kenny McIntosh, they wanted to create an old school newsstand wrestling magazine to replicate that feeling of excitement we all experienced as children when a new wrestling magazine would come out and we'd tear it open and go home and isolate the rest of the world by reading it. And I think, um, you know, so far it's been a, on newsstands for a year. It came out in the middle of COVID and it's thus far appears to be achieving its goal. Good, good, especially in the uh, the modern age that we live in as well. Oh, it's good to hear that it is doing so well, Keith. Yes, it's doing so well, and we really do have a good team behind it. And, you know, a lot of writers, you know, from the UK who were at various, uh, you know, Fighting Spirit and Power Slam, you know, a lot of folks with those credentials are there. So I'm proud to be, you know, part of this link that uh, extends from Bill Apter down to like guys like Tom Forty, who's an excellent writer, who's out of uh, the London area, you know, and a youngish guy. And, uh, you know, each of us bring our own professional wrestling fan experience to it. Oh, that's cool. I was a big fan of Power Slam back in the day. So you can see the way it's put together, the, the pages and stuff. It has got that Power Slam vibe, which, yeah, that was that was my go-to. You know, we had several. Wow, we could get Wow here. Obviously, Pro Wrestling Illustrated, but Power Slam was always, for me, in the 90s and early 2000s, my go-to. I, I feel that I have a certain creative freedom uh, working for Inside the Ropes that I didn't have previously, certainly not while I was working for WWE. And this is not in any way a condemnation of that company. Um, it was a house organ for uh, WWE, and there were, it was you were part of a machine. Whereas here, this is a magazine by wrestling fans, uh, intelligent, analytical wrestling fans, who know that there were people out there exactly like us and that's who i'm writing for and as a result while I, I never criticize people's abilities in the ring because i've never taken a bump in the ring and that's not fair to me to do nor do i take any joy in ripping apart a promotion uh you know or uh going tribal and choosing sides in this wrestling war but i just did an article in the net in the november issue uh covering the, the the battle for new york and i was able to convey with a lot of honesty what it felt to be at smackdown in madison square garden as well as aw grand slam at arthur f stadium and uh you know include the opinions of fans and wrestlers about what this whole unusual time means to them and i feel the presentation is as honest i've ever given any you know been uh been a let me let me rephrase that i feel that the presentation is as honest as anything i've ever done what a time as well now with AEW making such great strides the acquisitions they've had you know i think it's been amazing and it's got a lot more eyes on AEW specifically obviously i've watched it right the way through uh, but yeah, how do you feel with the current state of play, you know, post as we're coming out of the pandemic and the fans are back in? Uh, how, how do you feel for the wrestling fans and you being a wrestling fan yourself? 
Well, you know, it's, and it's interesting because my next book, which is coming out in 2022 on Free CW Press, is on, a, it's called Follow the Buzzards Pro Wrestling in the Age of COVID-19. That's the, the working title anyway. And so I've been observing wrestling during COVID and now this post-COVID era. And there was a momentum building prior to COVID with the advent of AEW. Like, wow, we're going to have a real wrestling war. And at that point, the wrestling war was between NXT and AEW. And it was kind of at a B-list or C-list level, it seemed. Now the wrestling war is between AEW and WWE. And so now it's a wrestling war, like the wrestling war in, uh, you know, the 1990s and, or, you know, very early 2000s, you know, with WCW. And, you know, in addition to that, because of Tony Khan's forbidden door policy, we're seeing New Japan performers and impact performers on, uh, on AEW. And, uh, you know, GCW, which is a, an indie promotion, I'm actually wearing their sweatshirt yeah, out, of, uh, you know, out of New Jersey. They've been putting on shows and using guys who appear on TV every week or masterfully using characters like Matt Cardona, who, uh, you know, has always had a personality online and now is able to show that personality in the ring and on promos. And look, their champion is John Moxley. So it's as loose and as free as it's been probably since before WWF swallowed up the territories. Mm-hmm. I was going to say it, it uh, reeks of the, the territory days to me. Uh, I, I was born mid-80s, mid so I missed it. And we didn't get the territories here in the UK on TV like you guys did. But yeah, it reeks of that to me, Keith. And it's great. It's great. You know, as you say, the door's open. Uh, you know, they've totally changed the way, you know, WWE look at it. They've gone the other way, haven't they? Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. You talk about what was going on in the UK. And I know you had joint promotions and all-star in the UK. Mm-hmm. And sometimes guys would appear on both shows. I, and I guess this was true with Rev Pro and Progress as well. You could have guys on both shows. But the storylines didn't necessarily translate from one to another. Mm-hmm. Whereas now... You know, a New Japan character can maintain that character, whether he or she, whether, I mean, in this case, it's it's male, but whether he is on um, a New Japan show, a New Japan strong show, AEW, or an American indie show. I mean, P, PWG has started up again in Los Angeles, and um, I, uh, from what people tell me, it hasn't, like, the momentum is still there, it, feels as if almost it never stopped it's just incredible isn't it you know when we weren't able to get to shows i think there's that that appreciation i know it's been several months now but the appreciation's back i feel you know there's not there's not more so than ever maybe more than ever before because we we know what it feels to do without (laughs) you know absolutely absolutely i think it'd be remiss of me not to talk about your most current book for ecw press so too sweet inside the indie wrestling revolution so yeah how, how was that putting that book together as we've spoken there about independence so yeah putting putting the book together how was that for you and the challenges I, of putting that book together well it, it was it was wonderful it was a great experience for me 
And I've, I've said this before. You know, I was on retainer for WWE for 22 years. And, um, you know, and I, and I was treated very well there. I have no, you know, bitterness towards WWE. And in fact, they kept, you know, throwing me projects as recently <clears throat> as 2020 when the fourth edition of the WWE Encyclopedia Sports Entertainment came out. Um, I'm one of the co-authors of that book. So I, you know, I never had a falling out with WWE. I had my retainer taken away and they, there's no longer a WWE magazine. So, you know, that's not an unreasonable decision on their part as the publishing uh, industry changed. And as personnel changed, it made sense that a publisher would come in and say, who's this guy I never saw in the office who we've been giving a raise to every, every year? Uh, but um, the, the problem was that I would, uh, when I would, um, you know, be interviewed on podcasts and so forth, they would say, oh, he's Ric Flair's co-author and Freddie Blassie's co-author and superstar Billy Graham's co-author. And he wrote for the WWE magazines until, you know, uh, well, the retainer was until 2007. And I probably continued contributing as a freelancer until 2009. And by now it was 10 years later. And I'm like, you know, I don't want to be a nostalgia act. Mm -hmm. You know, even though I'm in my 60s, I feel like I still feel in some ways like I'm in my 20s or early 30s. I still feel that vibrance and I still have this desire to indulge in the wrestling business the way I did when I was very young. So I wanted to do something different and something that was current. And uh, when I was at WrestleMania, uh, the one in New Orleans, was that 34 35 yeah, it was 34, yeah, 34 yes i went to 30, you know, and, and, and i was down there with you know some of the folks from inside the ropes like kenny mcintosh and i were you know and his whole crew ollie fiona there's a whole crew that every time he does a tour you know there, there are these personalities that the uh you know the fans of those tours know we were all like sharing this massive uh sweet uh sandra ruth who's a columnist now for inside the ropes magazine we were all there and um you know as i was walking around i noticed a lot of bullet club shirts and i said wow that's interesting because this is a wwe party and even though indie promotions are piggybacking off of it i've never seen this such a disproportionate amount of gear for something that wasn't WWE generated when the whole city appeared to be given over to WWE. And uh, when I spoke to my executive editor at ECW Press, Michael Holmes, he had noticed the same thing. He'd been down there and both of us had met with WWE about potential projects while we were down there. And I said, I think it might be time for an indie wrestling promotion book about the indie revolution. And he's like, I agree with you. Now, at that point, we didn't know that AEW was even going to happen. We thought it might be Ring of Honor, PWG, Rev Pro, Progress. You know, there'd be, uh, you know, there'd be sections about New Japan attempting to promote in the U.S. Uh, you know, there, um, we didn't fully grasp 
how we were on the cusp of something. But the book ends just as um, the first edition of Dynamite is about to take place. And um, it ends at a GCW show in Asbury Park, New Jersey, with Marco Stunt and Jungle Boy and Orange Cassidy. And I always forget there's a fourth uh, person there. But they're, they're about to... Oh, Joe Janela, of course. Mm-hmm. And they're... Uh, they're about to drive down to um, Washington, D.C. for the first edition of Dynamite, and a new world is about to begin. And it begins, when we go back historically, to around the early 60s, when there were outlaw promotions challenging, you know, uh, the Worldwide Wrestling Federation and the NWA promotions. So, um, you know, it's a history and it's experiential. I spoke to both indie wrestlers and fans. And, um, you know, we talk about the impact of uh, YouTube on the whole scene, how suddenly you could be exposed to a talent in Australia. And, you know, a month later, here he is at PWG in Los Angeles or at Rev Pro. I mean, you know, it, it, it's that immediate now. And um, I don't think there, there has been a book that chronicled this phenomenon in the same way. So, you know, it was very exciting to do. I found that the indie promotions I dealt with, all of them were just gracious as could be. You know, I was given access to people. I was allowed to hang out like a fan. You know, it reminded me, like, now I understand backstage at WWE is restricted. I mean, there's so many people who would be backstage. You would have, you know, 500 people backstage if you didn't restrict it now. But when I started writing for WWE, I was able to, you know, wander backstage and interview whoever I wanted and, um, you know, look at the monitor and listen to the guy's observations of what was going on in the ring. And this is the, this was the, the same, um, experience for me, except it was on the indies, you know. That's cool. That's cool. Did you have any dealings with Vince? Just going back to your time, I did, and they were all, and they were positive. Mm. I don't have any negative Vince stories. All my Vince stories are pretty much. Um, he he never told me not to sneeze in his presence. Uh, you know, he had told me because I wrote for the magazine. They would, you know, as you know, they like to change. Um, the, the the terminology that's been traditionally used. So, you know, he might walk up to me at Madison Square Garden and with a half smile say, you know, Keith, uh, don't use the word squared circle anymore. And this is why we want to say ring. He would explain it. And I also saw him be very kind uh, for years to fans. And, you know, I was over in Iraq at one of the tribute to the troops and I saw... Uh, you know, Vince talking to the soldiers over there. I saw The Undertaker go into the crowd after the show and Kurt Angle walk into the crowd and just sit down and start hanging out with the military people. And so, um, you know, I had dealings with Vince, but my dealings with Vince were not of evil Mr. McMahon. They were of a successful businessman who was aware of every little thing that went on there and obviously could uh, engender fear in people, but also was a creative guy who, you know, passionately cared about his family business. 
Could you speak a little bit more about the trip to Iraq from your, you know, your personal standpoint, maybe? Because that's that's interesting to me. That I'd like to hear a little bit more. Some of the experiences well, going you know, and, and doing that, that. That has to be, from what I understand, it was JBL who organized all those tributes to the troops. Um, you know, it was. I there were other entertainers who would go over to Afghanistan and Iraq. Now, whatever your feelings were about the validity of this war, and, you know, those are opinions I generally keep to myself, mm -hmm. th th that doesn't mean that um, the uh, soldiers who've enlisted should be uh, put to task for participating in something. They signed up, they're volunteers, and they go where they're told to go. So their spirits needed to be lifted. And there certainly was a lot of enthusiasm from the WWE talent about going there and making these people happy and talking to them. And there is something about wrestlers. I, I remember it might have been Greg Oliver, the writer, said that hockey players are very similar. He's Canadian. And so his uh, two th things are, you know, well, not just two things, but two of his specialties are hockey and wrestling. Um, you know, they're down to earth in the same kind of way. And it almost feels like when you're in this environment with a group of professional wrestlers, it's like you're with a group of blue collar guys who understand the challenges of the working man. So they didn't hole up in an executive suite and not deal with the rank and file. They were very enthusiastic about you know, wandering the grounds of the military bases and just connecting with, with the, the soldiers there, male and female. And, um, you know, it was on that level, it was a very inspiring thing to witness. Now, you know, Mick Foley and I, I remember us having one-on-one -on -one conversations about should we be at war? Should we not be at war? Why are we here? What, are we wasting resources? Are we wasting these people's talents? Should these people be endangered in this type of way? That's a side issue. And, and I'm not And it, look, it was always prominent on my mind. I, you know, I don't only write about wrestling. I also work as a, mm -hmm. you know, uh, straight journalist, as they say. So obviously you look at an issue and you analyze it from all sides. But in terms of the personal interactions involving the wrestlers, that was, you know, that was a positive scene. That's nice to hear. That's nice to hear. We just think, obviously, we just think of your safety, because I can remember, you know, when they've covered it over the years. Did you feel, did you feel safe? Um, I, I did. Um, maybe I was so excited about being there. And it was a historic, you know, look, it was a historical time. And I'm watching history unfold in essence just by being the, in the presence of it um i know at one of the bases there was a shelling and um everybody was put into like a bomb shelter and uh it was from over over the fence you know somebody fired some shells and look you know if you're the american military and you come into another country and you claim a nice chunk of land and say, this is our base now, you're going to get shelled like people aren't going to be holding parades for you necessarily. So um, everybody had to run into the shelter and it was during breakfast. And then I guess the threat passed and everybody came upstairs 
And as Mick Foley described it afterwards, he goes, and through it all, the big show remained in the cafeteria, finishing his corn pops. <laughs> well, for eloquently put by Mr. Foley there. Absolutely, absolutely. I think, yeah, I'd like to come away from obviously all the stuff you've done in wrestling. So I know you've done a lot with broadcasting, the big broadcasters over in America. Some of your favorite projects you've done, you know, outside the wrestling, because I know you've done so much. Well, I mean, I don't know if I'm even supposed to be talking about what I do day to day. I'm a senior producer at CNN full time mm -hmm. now, but I've worked at Fox. I've worked at MSNBC. I've worked for CBS, NBC and ABC. Um, and mainly I'm doing true. I worked for America's Most Wanted, the crime mm -hmm. show. Um, and uh, I'm doing a lot of true crime again during the um, the time leading up to the 2016 election and through the Trump years, I did a lot of hour long uh, political shows, uh, you know, but uh, I'm now back to doing a lot of true crime again, which is a, a forte of mine. I've enjoyed true crime since I was growing up. I've written several true crime books. So I feel I'm in a very comfortable environment for myself. <laughs> Other people are extremely uncomfortable with true crime because the stories are very disturbing and they're left with an unsettled feeling because, wow, these people could sneak into your homes in the middle of the night and kill your whole family. And that's, you know, that's not absurd. Not everybody is doing that. But after working on these shows, there's, a, you know, there's people who begin to feel that, that sense of fear. Um, but I find the human mind, um, you know, I'm intrigued by what goes wrong in the human mind. And maybe, you know, some of it ties into wrestling. It's like we're all a little off being wrestling fans. Um, you know, there are people who are willing to live a wrestler's lifestyle and go through, um, you know, pain and uh, in the early years, not make any money just to follow, chase this dream. And some people would say it's a very self-destructive path. Um, so, you know, I, it's an alternative way of looking at things. And with true crime, I understand the impulse to, boy, my life would be a lot better if I killed my, if I killed my wife now. Sure, a lot of people think that. But to actually do it, that is what intrigues me. It's like, that's not impulse control. And also, let's say somebody is married and, you know, the, the marriage has become very routine. It happens, you know, you can't always, um, you know, replicate the excitement of you know, the, your early days together. And then a person meets a, a, a woman who intrigues him. And he's like, okay, but my wife's in the way. So I'll kill her and then, you know, go off with this other woman to do what? for a year or two years down the line to be in another boring, monotonous, monogamous relationship and repeat the pattern. What are you going to do? Murder, murder her afterwards? And some people have. <laughs> my, my wife's always wanting to murder me on the daily. <laughs> I try her patience, let me tell you. I try her patience. But yeah, going off, off that... What would be your tips and advice for budding journalists? Because you've been around it for so many years, and I'm sure you've seen a lot of change with the development of technology. So, yeah, just 
a general from you about what these youngsters, you know, your, your tips, basically. I'm rambling. Your tips. Well, you know, and look, in many ways, there are more opportunities now than ever before. Because I started out as a writer when I was 19 years old, and I'd write for anybody. And uh, whether I was getting, well, I was actually starting to get paid, but I wouldn't necessarily get paid a lot of money. I would get paid something to justify, well, I'm actually a working writer now. And, um, you know, what I used to tell people is go to your weekly newspaper. Every community has a weekly and it might just be covering, you know, uh, you know, children's sports events or, you know, I remember when I was very young, I was writing the obituaries at a weekly newspaper in Queens. But it's, it, it gives you the seasoning of learning how to write for a living and learning how to chase a story and pursue a story and craft a story. And nowadays, you know, look, if your interest is, you know, you're wearing a progress shirt, if that's your passion, there are probably websites on the British indie scene that would be happy to have a contributor, whether they're getting paid or not. Or maybe writing isn't your thing. Maybe podcasts are your thing. But those opportunities are out there. But if you don't put yourself out there, you'll never um, reap the fruits of what your passion is. And then, and maybe then you shouldn't be doing this because it takes a lot of work to do what you do. And it takes a lot of organization. And I know from our, you know, exchanges back and forth, it's a lot of personal worry. You know, what if I didn't show up today? You know, it's like you sent me a, a message the other day. Now, you sure Friday's okay? Because mm -hmm. what if I said sounds great and I completely forgot? Mm -hmm. Then it's on you. Then you don't have a show. But you're willing to do it. You're willing to put in the work. And if anyone is willing to put in the work, I do believe with the talent, the drive, or hopefully some combination of both, you, you may not be at the pinnacle of where you want to be, but you'll have a taste of it. And having that taste is pretty damn good. I've got a lot of respect for yourself doing writing as well. I've had to go into this side of it. Uh, you know, I just don't feel confident. And I can write to a certain extent, but when I read stuff online, as you were saying, you know, on the uh, internet sites and stuff like that, some of the writing's fantastic. Uh, I look at a lot of uh, sports key stuff for the wrestling. You know, they have a lot of contrib yes, contributors I read it, there. Yes. So yeah. I just, I've got a lot of respect for you. Obviously, the amount of years you've been doing it, you know, being able to write and, and the caliber of writing, because I couldn't do it. It's just not my, uh, it's not my well, fault. Maybe you could. I mean, is it that you can do it or you don't want to do the writing and would rather be the interviewer? I think maybe, <laughs> yeah, I think the latter. I think the latter. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's, I've, I love, I love, uh, I love this. I love being, you know, on video and stuff like doing. So yeah, I think I have found what I wanted to do. So, right, because it doesn't mean you have to be a writer, just like it means, look, some people are very talented photographers. You know, I'm not. Um, and uh, they may love it. It's not necessarily wrestling. It could be a, a certain type of music. And, you know, you want to get close to it and you don't have the gifts to be a performer. So how do you get close to it? You cultivate that other skill. And now you can be a podcaster. And as long as you have a fertile mind and can come up with questions and keep those questions going and segue from topic to topic for an hour, 
you know, those are skills that take time in developing. And, you know, you're always challenging yourself and making Mm -hmm. yourself better. But in the end, you can be part of the the industry you love by using the, the talents that you have and the passion that you have to be a bigger part of it than just a regular fan. That's good, good words. I know a lot of people take a lot from what you were saying. Absolutely, absolutely. Keith, I know you've followed wrestling for many, many years. Now, you, fan perspective, uh, past, present, future, who are some of your favourites? I know there's going to be a myriad of people. Oh, that, that, that's a very <laughs> wide question. But, I mean, look, this comes up all the time. And, um, you know, uh, uh, who, I, who I think is my number one, I would say Terry Funk, just in terms of both longevity and the fluidity in the characters he played, how he went from being, you know, the West Texas baby face, the second generation good guy, the, the kid brother of Dory Funk Jr. He, he went uh, on to become an NWA champion who could wrestle a variety of styles all over, you know, the world and um, make his opponent look strong, but could also protect the title if anyone tried to shoot on him. Um, You know, and he, you know, turned, he was a very good promo. And early on, he was a good babyface promo, and he could be a very serious promo. And as he veered into middle age, he became the middle age and crazy character and started cutting some of the best promos ever. And then he became a hardcore wrestler and really held on as long as his body physically Mm -hmm. could, but was always contributing something, no matter what role he was playing. And, um, you know, so he would be at the top of my list. Um, You know, I'm obviously chauvinistic about the old Worldwide Wrestling Federation territory because that's what I grew up watching. But we were also fortunate in New York because we could get the um, what was called the Spanish International Network on UHF television, which, um, you know, they weren't the major channels. I don't know if the British TVs have UHF. Back, back in the day, I know, especially when I was growing up in the early 90s, you did have a UHF, you know, when you were tuning in. Yes. Uh, whether so we could the main, the, yeah. the, the VHF, yeah. which was the main frequency. Absolutely. It was like this alternative frequency that wasn't as strong. It was almost like the dark web. <laughs> and, um, and, and so sometimes wrestling would pop up on there. And that was very exciting. Like you'd be turning these channels and be static, 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 and be somebody like speaking Romanian on one channel and you turn it, it's like wrestling. And, uh, you know, so we could get wrestling from the Olympic Auditorium in Los Angeles. And that was broadcast in Spanish. And um, I watched it with such frequency. Now, I already knew a bit of Spanish because my grandparents had a bodega, a grocery store in the Bronx. And a lot of the neighbors, the customers were Puerto Rican. So I would hear Spanish spoken. But when I would watch it in Spanish, I was concentrating. And then that show would end and I'd keep the TV on and I'd watch the news in Spanish. And then there'd be a variety show in Spanish. And then I'd go to the candy store and I would buy the Spanish newspapers. So I credit professional wrestling with my ability to, 
I don't speak Spanish fluently, but I can communicate in Spanish. And, um, you know, and I end up living in New York, speaking Spanish every day at some point. And, you know, all props to the sport of kings. <laughs> so, you know, look, just like I didn't come from an educated family. If, um, you know, I buy a wrestling magazine, they talk about Abdullah the Butcher, they call the wild man the Sudan. And I'd go, what's the Sudan? And I had a set of encyclopedias and I'd look up the Sudan. So like if it wasn't for professional wrestling, I don't know if I'd be as educated as I am now. Uh, what about tag teams, Keith? Because tag teams were so prevalent. Uh, you know, any, any tag teams? I well, know, again... Know, I'm, I'm, I'm too old. I'm too young, unfortunately. I'm not going to say unfortunately. I'm glad I'm, you know, not older than I am. But, you know, I have friends who are, say, five, six years older than me, like the... Uh, Handsome Dick Manitoba, who's a, a, a punk rock pioneer, fairly well known in New York, as Ben was the Dictators, but they they had, they certainly have a following in Europe, uh, you know, from back in the day. He's you know a couple of years older than me, so he grew up watching, you know, Jerry and and Eddie Graham and the the fabulous Kangaroos with Wild Red Berry, and so you know there were Antonina Rocca and Miguel Perez. Those were the head headliners at Madison Square Garden. It actually predate the formation of the Worldwide Wrestling Federation title. That's when, um, you know, Vince McMahon uh, Sr., well, actually, Vince and James McMahon and Toots Mont were running the promotion and they were still part of the NWA. So that was a golden period for tag teams that I missed. Um, I also wasn't in the Carolinas in the early 70s when they were a tag team territory. But, um, you know, if we're talking about the old days, you know, I can remember watching, uh, you know, King Curtis and Tarzan Tyler and uh, Rene Goulet and Carl Gotch. I mean, we, you know, in, in Los Angeles, there was, um, you know, the, the Great Goliath and Black Gordman were a villainous tag team. And then my grandparents at a certain point moved down to Florida so I got to see the Briscoe brothers wrestle down there, you know, and that was all very exciting. And of course, now you look at AEW and, you know, there's some of the best tag team matches that have ever been presented anywhere over there. You know, I mean, they're building up to, uh, it seems, to Kenny Omega and Hangman Page. Those guys were a fabulous tag team, though. And now you have the, the Bucks and you have, you know, Luchasaurus and Jungle Boy and FTR, of course. And I mean, you know, every week you can, and, you know, Penta and, uh, and, and, and Ray Finese. I mean, th those are great tag teams and you can see them on television every week. I mean, I wish sometimes I was 12 years old just because mm -hmm. these things would be embedded in my memories and I could tell stories about all these guys when I was 50. Did you see the cage match with the Bucks? And uh, Phoenix and Pentagon. What are your I thoughts on that? Did. I certainly it did. So, it was. I know it was acclaimed. Uh, what what a match! It had everything, yeah. didn't it? The story, the spots. That was that was an absolute showcase. Yeah. Well, you you talking about it all out, right? Yeah. Sorry. Now. At all out, at all out. Uh, yeah, yeah, at all out, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know that was fantastic. Now, I'll tell you something, and I might be hurting myself by 
telling people about this because the place is going to get so crowded it'll lose its allure. There's a bar in Park Slope, Brooklyn, where I live called DDT, and it's a pro wrestling themed bar. And they only seat, I don't think they could get more than 50 people in wow. there most. So, um, you know, I've been watching the pay-per-views there. And the, I, I actually mentioned them in my article for the Battle of New York and Inside the Ropes. Um, you know, and I watched all out there. And a friend of mine was running late when he showed up. And uh, the, the owner said, hey, the place is filled to capacity. He's like, please, please, I'm supposed to meet Keith here. He's like, oh, Jesus Christ, how many friends do you have who I'm <laughs> going to have to let in over the limit? But outside, this, the sidewalk was jammed with fans. And inside, the crowd inside was more of like the cosmopolitan wrestling crowd who was sitting there with drinks in their hands and analyzing and assessing and comparing the cage match to other great tag team matches or was this as good as you know the bucks versus um ftr from you know a, a year ago you know we're having discussions like that um you know what would be will there be a surprise pulled off tonight you know then adam cole when adam cole showed up you know discussing that outside the crowd outside were like guys wearing masks and wrestling belts peeking through the window and like watching the monitor through the window and just screaming. Like the owner said to me afterwards, he goes, I'm going to have to clear the streets next time. Like the neighbors are going to shut us down if I let these people congregate <laughs> like that. But there's something about that communal experience. Like, all of these guys could have watched it at home or they could have gone to one guy's apartment and jammed in there and watched it. But they needed all to be together to watch it. And I guess that's true whether it's, you know, whether you're watching the Premier League or whether you're watching professional wrestling. But it added for me, I wasn't there live in Chicago but it, I feel like I was watching it live somewhere mm. because I was in the middle of this fan excitement. And obviously that's something we missed during COVID. It's, it's such a good time. That's such yeah. a good time. I, I love it. I love it. You know, and uh, I think it's got a lot of the old school people back who were, you know, attitude era, attitude era, but I, I'm hearing a lot more people are back into it. Uh, you know, WWE in the same context as well. It's not just the AEW. I, I was at SmackDown, yeah. you know, in Madison Square Garden. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can't tell me that those fans weren't ecstatic being there. And yet WWE draws more kids. That's fine. The kids were fast. You know, they were enraptured just looking at the ring. And I remember when my kids were young, bringing them to Madison Square Garden and then being like six or seven years old and seeing these WWE superstars as they're branded and seeing them actually in front of them live. And all, it, it's almost like, you know, superheroes come to life and here they are right in front of me, flesh and blood. And you feel that at a WWE mm -hmm. show. And, you know, that's fine. You know, um, obviously we can all take issue with storylines and promos and, you know, the culture but, you know, you can't negate the excitement it generates for a lot of people. And a lot of adults were having a great time, too. And 
look, there are people who don't even know that AEW exists. Mm -hmm. There are WWE fans and nothing else. And all they care about is WWE. And then there's people who are enjoying both because I don't think you have to be exclusive one to the other. You know, while I was writing for uh, WWE, uh, you know, that was in the 80s when the NWA would come up to Philly or they would go up or they would go to the Nassau Coliseum on Long Island. I, I saw a war games match you know, in, in, at the Nassau Coliseum while I was writing for WWE. And I was overjoyed. I felt how could anyone be anywhere else in the world but here right now? So you can support more than one promotion. Absolutely. It's just too much of this. Like, well, if you watch that, I'm not talking to you and uh, vice versa. I'm seeing a lot of that, you know, amongst the IWC. Uh, I, I like I like it all. I'm like, you, Keith, I'm, you know, I, I just chill, chill out and watch it. I don't start, yeah, you know. fans. And look, most of the world scorns us anyway for being wrestling fans. <laughs> so let's stick together and appreciate this thing we love. Absolutely. I had the uh, honour of getting to Madison Square Garden in 2013 for uh, Bruno's induction. I'd been to New York in 2003, but there wasn't anything going on. WWE New York was still there when I went. Uh, but yeah, you know, you're just talking about MSG, the mecca that it is. It was, uh, it was an incredible night seeing uh, Bruno, Bruno go in and uh, Arnold inducting him as well. Fantastic night that was. Yeah, it, it was fantastic. And um you know, I was there that night. I was there with handsome Dick Manitoba and uh, my friend Mike Edison, who's an author of some renown. He just wrote that uh, chart. Well, he wrote that Charlie Watts book about uh, sympathy for the drummer, why Charlie Watts matters. And, you know, the book always received positive, you know, positive response. But and, and Charlie Watts even called him to compliment the book. And then when Charlie Watts just passed away, he's telling me that they can't even print copies fast enough, you know, to, to sell them. But he was there. With, it was me, Mike Edison, handsome Dick Manitoba. And then seated right behind us was the Blue Meanie at, that, at, at Bruno's induction. So, uh, you know, I think everybody was feeling the way that uh, you were feeling. Although I didn't particularly like the fans who were... Uh, taunting and teasing Bob Backlund during his induction. That's a Hall of Fame induction. Uh, yeah, just a bit of decorum for the inductees, yeah. I think, sometimes, yeah. It's my favourite yeah. night. It's my. It, it's still my favourite night, as much as, you know, I'm there for WrestleMania or the night after fan access. Keith, it's, it was my, uh, my favourite part. And the other guys, like, you're here for WrestleMania? I said, yeah, but it's all the, the old school guys getting their... Uh, getting their judgment and um you know i'm curious and I, I wrote about this in inside the ropes you know this year the um the inductions were virtual inductions still mm. because you know wrestlemania as you recall was um the first re real live wwe event since covid i mean it seems like so distant now because now we're accustomed to live mm -hmm. events every week on television. But, you know, as recently as, rest, as April, you know, that was a novelty that WWE was going to have a live event. And, um, you know, so the Hall of Fame was still virtual. They were not putting people indoors. And so I, I'd spoken to Razor Ramon or Scott Hall and I spoke to um, 
Davy Boy Smith Jr. And they were describing to me how they were basically like in a studio and there was crowd noise pumped in as they either accepted the awards or, you know, made their speeches. And, you know, it was very produced. Um, you know, it'll be great next year. Hopefully there won't be another pandemic that will sideline everything to actually go to a Hall of Fame ceremony again and, and witness that live. And, uh, you know, like you said, decorum's important. You know, Absolutely. Don't, don't boo the legends. Respect. Just respect. It's their, it's their night. It's their, I, I, I've, not, I've not been a fan of that at all. Uh, yeah, you know, and, and especially like Bob Backlund. Oh my days! For so many years, it's just was so disrespectful to him. It's, it's just it shouldn't it shouldn't be in attendance. I'm afraid, yeah. but that's a story for another day. Keith, you are in London next week because we spoke last week. So yeah, what's what's happening? Uh, why are you over? Why are you coming to the lovely UK next week? Well, you know, it's interesting. I was initially coming to the UK because Kenny McIntosh from Inside the Ropes was uh, promoting a tour of the big show. But um, Kenny suffering, was suffering from exhaustion. Um, from what he tells me, the interest was there, the tickets were selling nicely, and he was just trying to do everything himself. And he was just physically overwhelmed to the point where he ended up in the emergency room. So on doctor's orders, he has had to take some physical time off from doing these tours until he can assemble a team. But I had already booked my ticket to London. So uh, he said, well, while you're there, come up to Glasgow. So I'll be in London, there I'll be in go. Glasgow, and then I'll head back to New York. And, you know, it's a good time to support a friend who's going through, you know, a, a bit of a struggle, but we'll, we'll overcome it. And, um, you know, for me, being selfish, those are two good cities to hang out in. Which which landmarks are you going to go to over here? Are you going to do some sightseeing? Are you going to have time to do some sightseeing? I or is it know, business you know, only? I, prior, prior to COVID, I would, um, I, would go to, I would try to go to London at least once a year. So uh, I'm not sure. I've been, you know, trying to look up, you know, some, um, you know, I, I have friends who I want to meet up with. Uh, there were other writers there who I might want to meet up with. Uh, you know, I've been looking to see, you know, what's going on in the art galleries and the museums. So right now I haven't planned it. I have a lot of other things to do work-wise before I get over there. So that's where my focus is right now. Uh, absolutely. So, yeah, safe, safe journey next week. And uh, yeah, I know, I know, I know I'm off work next week, but I'm away with the wife. But yes, yeah. we'll, we'll have to try and do it at some point. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, all the best to Kenny, because I know from all the stuff he does, uh, he, he works so damn hard and he's been so successful. And uh, yeah, all my best to Kenny, because he's yeah, a cornerstone he's in the I, British I scene. I think he's all right. You know, he's, he's basically resting up, but, um, you know, he's, he's okay. He's okay. But he really needs a team behind because he's doing the magazine. He's doing the podcast. Mm -hmm. He's attempting to do these tours. He's like created this little empire and you can't do it as a one man. No. Band, you know, it's, it's and, probably the hardest thing delegating when it's yeah, that's it's the like hardest the bit. Thing. Yeah. It starts with a, with a dream in your head. And it's like, oh, I'd like to 
organize something. And, you know, at first when the stakes are low, you're able to do it. But as the stakes get higher and the names get more prominent, then you develop a following. It's like starting a taco stand and then trying to open a, a, a giant restaurant. It's a big jump and you can lose everything by, you know, making the wrong decision. So, uh, you know, it, 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 it's growing pains. You know, I'm fully confident that he's going to come up with a strategy like he always does and that there will be more, you know, inside the ropes tours. Absolutely. Look forward to them. Absolutely. Keith, where can the viewers and listeners find you in terms of social media? And yeah, a bit, bit of a plug for Inside the Ropes magazine, your your part in colour commentary that you do. Yeah, just uh, where everyone can find you. Um, well, um, you know, obviously in Inside the Ropes magazine every month. My most recent wrestling book is Too Sweet Inside the Indie Wrestling Revolution that came out in 2020 and is available on Amazon. Um, you know, you type in my name, Keith Elliott Greenberg, you're going to find an awful lot. Uh, you're going to find my list of books. You're going to find articles I've written on a variety of subjects. And on social media, I'm, I still have, I think they cut you off at 5,000 follow uh, friends on Facebook. They I think do. I'm up to like 4,200 now. So you can still find me there. Um, I, I, I'm on Instagram and I'm on Twitter. Like, you know, like everybody is, I guess there are other media platforms that I've yet to discover, but those are some places where people can find me. It was absolute mayhem when Facebook, WhatsApp and Instagram went down the other day. <laughs> I know, you know, it was funny. I was, I was working at CNN that day and I went on Facebook on my phone. I'm like, these are yesterday's posts. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like looking through my settings and thinking maybe it's the internet. It's like, but wait a second, everything else is fine on here, you know? And, um, you know, there are people that that's their window to the world. Mm -hmm. You and I have been communicating via messenger. So without having, and there's a lot of friends I communicate with like that. And, you know, if I talk to a friend in Europe, you know, we're often video chatting or, you know, talking by a phone with Facebook Messenger. You know, we, we're dependent on that Absolutely. to maintain the relationship, you know? So, um, you know, you don't realize how ingrained that is, how dependent we've really become on it. You don't know what you've got until it's gone. Absolutely. Absolutely. My guest for episode 96 of Stu's Wrestling Podcast, all the way from New York, New York Times bestseller, writer, journalist, broadcaster. You've done a lot of stuff, Keith. I would love to get you back on again because I know you've done so, so much. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on today on Stu's Wrestling Podcast. It's a pleasure. And look, you know, as soon as the the next book gets published, um, Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll, I'll be on here. And we'll have a lot to talk about. Absolutely. I look forward to uh, reading that once it's finished. A big thank you to Powered 4 TV for putting the episodes up on the on-demand service there. Big thank you to John Scott and Rich Crowhurst for all the support. Really appreciate it week in, week out. Nothing's ever a problem. Also, we're doing Powered 4 TV Big Fight Weekly, the MMA and Boxing Show with my cousin, Rich and John. 
have put on these first. It's been fantastic with that. Thank you to Chris Dutton again, as always, for the superb editing. I couldn't do this without him. And fantastic job once again. Thank you to Mike Angus for the intro, as always, to the show. You can find the Stew Dressing Podcast merch at WrestleMerchCentral.com. There is loads of stuff, lots of different items that you can get. Mugs, hats, face coverings, t-shirts, hoodies, even the new varsity jacket with embroidered Stew Dressing Podcast logo on it. Big thank you once again to Dean and the team for listing my products on there. Great work, great work. And we will see you soon for the next episode of Stew Wrestling Podcast. Podcast Network.